Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of Secular Faith. The author is Mark Smith, who is a professor of political science at the University of Washington. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with Mark. Welcome back to the New Political Science podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown. and Today I have the real pleasure to talk with Mark Smith, who is the author of Secular Faith, How Culture Has Trumped Religion in American Politics. Mark, how are you doing today? Doing great, thanks. Yeah, Mark, it's a it's a pleasure to have you on. You have this uh, new book with a very powerful cover. I, I would like you both to to maybe just tell us those that are listening about the cover. But before you do that, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure, I'm a professor of political science at the University of Washington in Seattle, where I've been for the last 18 years. I'm also an adjunct professor in the comparative religion program here, and also the Department of Communication. So my work really crosses over between political science and sociology and comparative religion, and in in the past has included a lot of elements of communication, and so I'm comfortable in any of those spots. So tell us about this cover. In doing this podcast, I have become very interested in the the, the quality and and how compelling some covers are, and in your cover book uh, covers it meets that so maybe you could just tell us about this this image uh how you chose it and sort of what what how it sets up the start of the book sure i actually turned over the cover design entirely to the university of chicago press they they of course gave me a chance to recommend something but i said look this is outside of my area of expertise i'll trust you all your you know production and marketing people to to find a good one and they in fact did so it's um Got a, It's kind of a black background with a picture of a cross. So since my book is about religion in American politics, Christianity being the dominant religion, the cross makes for a, a good symbol. And there are um, bricks, and the, the cross is kind of there standing out against the bricks, and it, it uh, makes for a powerful visual image. Yes, yeah, this sort of neon, neon lit uh, yellow and red cross. I hope that people have the chance to go out and get the book and see the cover. In the book, you you pursue a a, a provocative thesis uh, in some ways that culture is in some ways more important than religion in defining some of the key issues in American politics. You start with this this clever illustration about the lending of money. I wonder if you would recount that for us briefly. Sure. So with the the lending of money, um, there are passages of the Bible that explicitly deal with that, that. And if you just read the passages straight up, most of them seem to either prohibit lending money with interest entirely, or you can only do it to certain populations, either to people who aren't poor or to uh, foreigners. You get a slightly different interpretation through some of the New Testament parables. But when you put it all together, it looks like a pretty clear prohibition on money lending at interest. And that was, in fact, the church's take on money lending at, at interest for many centuries. But as time goes on and we, um, and, you know, in the Western world, move 
away from an agricultural society purely and commercial society starts developing. There's a need for more money lending and those services emerge. And there's a lot of pressure on the church to change its traditional teachings. And this, in fact, does happen um, during, you know, the, the middle to late Middle Ages. And by now, Oh, it's not even an issue that's up for debate. We just accept that money lending and interest is perfectly uh, moral. Um, we don't give it much thought one way or the other. There are laws on the books against what we call usury, so extractive interest, say through payday uh, lenders. Some states have those laws. But just going to the bank and getting a loan for your car or your, or your house, um, it's just a normal thing we do. And I use this as an illustration for the broader set of processes that I uh, argue in the book happen over time, which is we think that often think that that religion drives morality. And I argue that it's really more of the reverse and that the culture comes in, shapes morality, and then religion adjusts and accommodates to that. And with with the usury, we see that something that looks like it has a pretty clear prohibition in the Bible. Over time, that gets interpreted, uh, reinterpreted as a product of the growth of a, a capitalist economic system. So in, towards the beginning of the, the, the book, you, you refer to the separating of the public from the private. And this seems like it matters a lot in how uh, different churches uh, evolve uh, and, and have, have adjusted uh, some of their, their doctrines. So what do you mean by this exactly? What, is the, what does it mean to separate the public from the private? Well, churches are m- mostly in the business of religious beliefs and doctrines and building communities and doing, doing outreach and so on. The politics part of their mission is generally not the main part of their mission. But for some churches and denominations and groups, it comes in and, and is something they spend some, some time on. So the intersection between what they teach people on a daily basis and then the political implications of those, that's not always up front for them, but sometimes it is. And they have to figure out how do we manage the political dimensions of our teaching. So, for example, if you're going to teach your um, parishioners, say, that, uh, you know, the blasphemy is, is, uh, is wrong, are you also going to lobby for laws to ban blasphemy? The answer now is no, but in the Puritan era, the answer was definitely yes. That was an offense that could get you executed. And this happens in all kinds of other areas. So take abortion. You, you could just teach your parishioners abortion is wrong if that is, in fact, consistent with your, your tradition and your you know, interpretations and so on. You could also both teach your parishioners that it's wrong and push for public policy to reflect that, that is, for restrictive abortion policies or to ban it entirely. And what, one of the way this plays out in my book is um, – when there's pressure, when the culture is changing, new values are emerging, new um, norms surround the family or the workplace or the community, and, and people are viewing the world differently than earlier generations did, there's often pressure on the political stances that particular religious groups have taken to accommodate and adjust to those. And one way you can, can adjust without directly changing your teachings is to make it a matter of what I call private morality rather than public policy. So you keep the moral teaching, but you no longer press the political implications of it. And a classic illustration of this would be the Catholic Church's approach to contraception in the last half century. So as 
as most people know, the Catholic Church still teaches that using contraception is immoral. Everybody also knows that the vast majority of Catholics ignore that teaching and use it anyway. Um, 99% of all women of reproductive age or Catholics have used contraception at, at least once, um, which is not surprising if you look at, say, the number of married women and the size of their, their families, so they've, they've come way down. So the Catholic Church has kept the teaching, but the thing that they've changed is they don't make it a political issue anymore. They're not out there lobbying state legislatures in order to try to restrict the availability of contraceptives. And that is a change, because if you go back into the 20th century for about the first two-thirds, the Catholic Church was involved in public policy debates over contraceptives. And the states that passed the tightest laws, the, the most stringent regulations on contraception, were all the, the states with the heaviest Catholic populations. So the Mid-Atlantic and um, New England areas where, where, were the, where we had the strongest um, laws. So that's an example of separating private morality from public policy. The Catholic Church has kept the moral teaching, but it no longer has a political dimension to it, as opposed to some other things that the Catholic Church is involved in, where they, they have both the moral teaching and the, the public policy implication. Abortion would be an obvious example of that. Now, is how, how does this work? What's what's the mechanism here? Is this is this primarily about uh, prioritizing? That is, there are certain issues that that uh, the the church, whatever denomination it is, recognizes are just not priority. Or is it about retaining uh, the, uh, affiliates? Um, about about a fear of of loss, uh, losing those uh, that are part of the faith. What's what's driving this kind of um, secularization that you, you describe in the book? Right. So great question. And I propose two mechanisms for this process in the book. The, the first is what you were describing there just a moment ago, that there's a need for the leaders to maintain the allegiance of their followers, because those followers, you can't compel them to attend church, to give tithes and dues and to participate in the life of your religious community. So if you're pushing on those members political messages that they don't want, they can easily leave and go somewhere else or even give up the faith entirely. So there's a there's a, a need for the leaders to pay attention to what the members want. But then another mechanism is that the leaders themselves, it's not like they exist in some sort of hermetically sealed uh, bubble. They're also part of the larger secular society. So they are shaped by you know, the media and schools and all the other forces of socialization. And if you play that out over time, you often end up in a situation where the leaders of a religious group at one point, they have a different value orientation. They have different worldview, different approach to how they think about a lot of matters than previous generations of leaders did within that same tradition. So the leaders themselves are often changing just as their members are changing. And so there's not necessarily a tension between what the leaders are pushing and what the members are, are wanting. When you took, put those two mechanisms together, over time you see the uh, political stances that, that the Christian groups in America are taking. They adjust and accommodate to the culture, and they adjust and accommodate in different ways that I try to flesh out in the book. But the point is, there is this secularization that is driving um, that accommodation process. Now, as someone who has uh, attended a couple of Quaker meetings, I was particularly drawn to the chapter that you wrote on slavery, though the Quakers fit into a number of different parts of the book, maybe because they're the kind of the outlier in some of these things. 
But I wonder if you can lay out what your argument is in the, in the chapter on slavery and how uh, churches came to reconcile their, their changing views towards slavery over time. Sure. So the slavery issue is a very interesting one because it covers the full spectrum of views. That is, early in American colonial history, slavery was completely accepted. No one was there challenging it. Um, so that's, you know, early, early part of the 17th century when it starts in Virginia and emerges later in Massachusetts. And then you can look at the situation now where basically no one is publicly advocating for, hey, would, shouldn't we bring back slavery? Wouldn't that be great? Slavery still happens, but it's in sex trafficking and it's part of the underground economy, not something that anybody publicly advocates for. So it's a, it's a full transformation for something being seen as completely moral to a middle point where it was up for debate. And now we're on the backside of that where it is seen as completely immoral. And thus, you can you can see how when slavery was initially established in the American colonies, for the most part, it wasn't actively debated. When it was actively debated, for example, amongst the Puritans in, in Massachusetts, they turned to the Bible to try to figure out, OK, is slavery allowable? If so, under what conditions? And what they discovered was it is allowable so long as you were enslaving captives of war or foreigners who were offered to sail to you. So in other words, the Puritans didn't think that you could go down the street and, you know, knock on Bob's door and enslave Bob. Um, you, it had to be these specific categories of people. So the captives of war for the Puritans would be uh, in, in the various wars they fought against Indian tribes. They enslaved a bunch of people through that mechanism. And when slave ships arrived on your shores, bringing foreigners, i.e. Africans, for sale, you could buy them and, and use them as your slaves. So that, that was the initial standing of slavery. Over the next century and a half, you, you get big changes in the culture. You get the enlightenment, more emphasis on reason, some uh, attention to individual rights, and you get the American Revolution. And the American Revolution crystallizes this notion of, of freedom, which becomes kind of a part of the American psyche. And people start arguing at that point, well, isn't freedom, if we're believing in that, isn't that incompatible with slavery? And in the northern states, the answer to that became, yes, they are incompatible. And so the northern states, as part of the revolutionary struggle, that's when they had emancipation. So, so within a couple of decades after the Civil War, all of the northern states um, no longer have uh, permanent slavery. It was a more complicated process in the, in the southern states, in part because it was a much bigger part of the economy and it was harder to uh, eliminate. And so you had this period of from between about 1800 and 1860 we had very active uh, debates and arguments made on both sides of the issue. Does the Bible support slavery? Because a literal reading would suggest yes. But then the abolitionists came up with contrary arguments to say, no, we're, we've been interpreting the Bible wrong for all these years. If you look at it more closely, you, um, you know, let's, let's pay attention, for example, to the principles of the Bible. The principles of the Bible say God is, is merciful. He favors justice for everybody. There's the golden rule. You put all that together, and that teaches against slavery. Or you, um, they, they try to go back to say, well, the Bible prohibits what's called man-stealing in the King James Version, essentially kidnapping. And if you're prohibiting kidnapping, aren't you indirectly prohibiting um, slavery? So there were these new interpretations that came along, and those were attractive to people who were living in a cultural environment that was on the backside of the Enlightenment, the backside of the American revolution where these ideas of freedom were were prominent and those interpretations just made sense to people who are raised in those environments even though those, those interpretations to the puritans would have seemed absurd 
Um, and now we are, you know, 150 years after that, after the, the Civil War puts the issue to a, to arrest. And the issue is actually still live in a certain sense. So if you pay attention to the, to the debates between Christian apologists and the new atheists, um, you know, people like uh, Christopher Hitchens and, and Sam Harris, and when they debate uh, prominent Christian leaders like William Lane Craig and so on, often slavery comes up as a topic of debate. And the, the new atheists will typically say, hey, the Bible's flawed. It supports slavery. Why should we trust it on anything? And then the, the Christian apologists will come back and say, no, you're reading it wrong. And when you interpret it the right way, it actually opposes slavery. Interesting thing about that is because we live in an environment that views slavery as just so abhorrent, the Christian apologists are more or less forced to take the interpretive moves that the, that the um, abolitionists pioneered. And interestingly, I show in a, a later chapter that on the homosexuality issue, a lot of the Christians who have been pushing for more tolerance of homosexuality have used the same kinds of interpretive styles that the abolitionists use. And now they're applying them to homosexuality to say that all these passages that down through the ages were understood to be prohibitions on homosexuality are not actually prohibitions on homosexuality. And so the same process is emerging where cultural chins come in. The secular society is evolving. People are living in a different environment, getting different you know, values and, and messages from those around them. And then that leads to this accommodation and, and change in how religious groups um, approach their political stances. Mark, the book is just so interesting and so timely in, in so many ways. We've talked mainly about some of the sort of more historical pieces of this, but, but I think you also write about some real contemporary issues as well. What's next for you? What's, what is your next project? My next project is going to be a, an extension of this one where I want to, um, this is focused on, on American history, which is itself a pretty meaty topic, and, and I do cover from the colonial era to the present. But I want to extend this really back to throughout Western history, and I want to show that, that um, the Bible kind of, it, it's often seen as the foundation point of Western society and Western morality. I want to show that at the, that that it starts out that way, but as time goes on, Christian morality is really a moving target, and that it changes um, as a result of these cultural uh, trends, and so that the uh, kinds of moral stances that Christians take today are very different from what the early Christians would have taken. Well, it sounds like our time must must be done. I hear an alarm <laughs> going off, which yes. means. We must have reached our end point, and, and it's not without uh, covering a lot of ground. So uh, thank you, Mark, for, for talking about your book, which is called Secular Faith, How Culture Has Trumped Religion in American, po uh, American Politics, published by University of Chicago Press this year. Mark, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Heath. I appreciate it.